Well, we've been looking at the theme of thriving. And uh, if you stick a pot plant out in the sun today, it's probably not going to thrive because the heat is probably going to wilt over. But really what we've been trying to get our heads around is that Scripture and, and the Bible uses a lot of language that's agricultural. And God uses it in such a way that he tries to get us to understand biblical truths and, and timeless truths about God and our relationship with him just through those analogies. So we as a people are supposed to thrive because we know God, because God dwells within us, because we are the bearers of the presence of God. We are supposed to thrive. We're supposed to be extraordinary people. And the Bible uses all this sort of analogy of, of God wanting to prune us back so that we grow more, him wanting to refine us. And, and so he, he wants to cultivate our lives so that we do flourish and that we grow and that we bear fruit and that we're a blessing, not just that we're growing ourselves, but we branch out and we are a blessing to those around us. And so the Bible uses a heap of language that all is agricultural, um, but it's saying the same thing. We were born to thrive. God made us so that we would thrive, and he made a way for us to do that, and he set up the kingdom so that we could he wants us to be remarkable. I don't think there's one person in this room that God doesn't have a remarkable plan for. He's got extraordinary things for every one of us to do. And, and when we get to the end of our life, there should be a great celebration of all the things that we've accomplished in God and for God and through God because that's his design. He's got special plans for every one of us. And we've been looking at the I guess the soil that we plant into is our heart. And if our hearts are, are supple and they're right before God, then, then we're going to have this hunger and this, and this desire to plant deep in our lives godly things. But if our hearts are hard, if we're consumed by things of the world, if we're not in a good place with God, those seeds will never take root. And so God's saying to us, sow into your life the sort of things that will produce fruit. Sow into your life the things that are going to bear or reap a harvest 10, 30, 60, 100 fold. And so there's things that we do to invest into our own lives that as we bury that seed in our lives, it will at the proper time reap a harvest. And if we plant the right things, we'll get the right crop. If we plant potato, uh, potatoes, we'll get potatoes. If we plant into righteousness, we'll get righteousness. If we feed the spirit of God in our lives and we chase after God and we pursue him, we spend time with him, we'll reap the benefits of that. So it's a, it's a timeless principle. You reap what you sow. So we need to be people that are sowing the right things. Then we get the right harvest. But we looked the other week that the one thing we can't control in that process is the watering. So if you can dig the soil up, you can plant the seed, but you can't make it rain. And so the Bible bookends our faith life with water, the baptism of the Spirit and then the infilling of the Spirit and the showers of grace that God pours out on us all the time to water that crop in our lives. We can't do this without the Spirit of God. We can't do it without you know, God's power and his presence and his life and that river of life that God talked about. The water that I give you, you'll never thirst from. So we've got this bookend. We start our faith life by being filled with the Spirit and experiencing that refreshing of God, the waters, living waters flowing through us. And out of that initial startup, we begin to do things for God. 
The mistake that a lot of people make is they try and do things for God without that initial baptism in the Spirit. So we need to be people that minister and work out of the living waters of God. But there's this tension in Scripture between the things that God's done and only God could do and the things that we need to do. So if we were all just couch potatoes and sat at home and waited for God to change the world, he could, but he's chosen to use us. So we're in this tension between what is God going to do for us or what has God done for us or what do we need to do to make sure our lives grow? And, and I believe there's this real tension in Scripture. You'll find a lot of people will stand on the premise that Christ has done it all. In Christ, we are new creations. There's nothing more to do. The work is finished. And I believe that wholeheartedly, but that's justification. There's a process that says we have to grow in God. We have to grow in holiness. We have to grow in maturity. And that's the process of sanctification. And you can polarise yourself to either end, but I believe that it's a both end, that God calls us to both those things, that there is a place for us to have works And there is a place for us to experience and receive grace. It's not at the exclusion of both. It's the inclusion of them together. So out of grace, out of God's infilling and power, we work for him. But we don't just work. We work because of what God's done in our life. And if you study church history, you'll find that there's this big contention back in about the 1700s a guy called John Calvin came up with this idea that God's done it all. So so we don't need to do anything. We really can take a back seat in God's economy. And and I believe there's truth in that. You and I can't add anything to what God has done. But that makes it easy, very easy to opt out, doesn't it? And say, well, if God's done it all, what's my obligation? What's my role in life, And I believe that we need to combine what John Calvin said and what the Armenians said together. And the Armenians said, no, we don't necessarily know precisely what God wants us to do. So we'll get out there and we'll share our faith. And we'll, we don't know if God's going to save that man, but we'll go and share our testimony with him. And so it really polarised Christianity to the detriment of Christianity when it was actually both together. You show me your faith without works. It's dead, said James. And so when Martin Luther came along and he read the book of James, he said, what a load of rubbish. It's all about works. And he misunderstood that grace and works go together. You can hold them in tension. Yes, they are in tension, but they can go together. What good would it be for us to be saved, to be infilled with the presence of God, to have all this power and yet not give it away, not serve God? And so we need to understand it's a both end. There's stuff God has done and will do for us, but there's obligation and responsibility that we take on ourselves to grow. And God will prune us, he'll cut us back, he'll speak to us, he'll he'll refine us, but we need to be part of that process of letting God change us. So we either come to a church or we either do the Christian life out of obligation or we do it out of adoration. If we do it out of adoration for God, then we can hold that tension together because it's not legalism and it's not law. It's grace and mercy being worked out in our lives. 
I do these things because I adore Jesus and what he did for me. I don't do them because I think I have to. It's a love relationship. That's why I'm here today, because I want to express my love to Jesus. I want to do that lavishly. I believe that's why God made me. I believe it's the highest pursuit that there is, is to sit in the presence of God and lavish my love on him, knowing what he's done for me and knowing that he still wants to lavish more on me. And that's why I think God gave us bodies to express that love, not just in words but in actions as well. And I think if you look at Scripture, there's many, many times where, where, where this sort of adoration for God comes out in people. You think of the lady that came to Jesus with that jar of alabaster oil, very expensive perfume. And in the midst of all the disciples and the Pharisees and all the people that were there, she got down at Jesus' feet and poured out the alabaster oil all over him and used her hair. Like, that's lavish. That's ostentatious. That would be me, like me breaking out in dance here in, you know, on a Sunday morning. You guys would go, hang on, what's going on here? It's extreme. It's radical. But, but how can we look at the cross how can we say, how can it be that you would die for me and yet not have an expression of love bubbling up inside of us that just wants to break out and say, thank you, God. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? How can that not convert to the expression and overflow of love? It has to. Because Jesus said, if you don't praise me, even the rocks will cry out. Because there's something in us when God has touched us that wants to break out and give back to God the honour and praise. But not out of legalism, not out of law, not because God has told us to. We do it because we're compelled out of love. And there's a great difference. You know, I could teach my kids to tell me every night that they love me. Samuel, tell me that you love me. What would be the point if he did that out of obligation? It's when he comes to me and just says, Dad, you know, I love you. That's the type of worship God wants. Not because we come to church, not because we do the process, but because in the lifestyle that we live, there's this constant gratitude and communion and this relational dynamic where it's like a, if I had a ribbon, right? A, a ribbon that had no end, it's like it's seamless, right? And that's what our, our lives are supposed to be, this seamless commune with God in everything that we do so that there's this relationship going on in anything that we're doing, whether we're mowing the lawn or driving the car or washing the dishes or coming to church. We practice the presence of God. It's like a seam that's woven through us all the time. But I think, unfortunately, what we do is we cut that ribbon up and I, I will do the worship thing here and we'll do it over here when really it's a lifestyle of worship. What we do here on a Sunday morning is just where we corporately bring all that together. And you would think that if we've all got this overflowing love for God, this gratitude, and we bring that all together in one room, the collective you know, mass of those people overwhelmed with love for God would be the sort of place you'd want to hang around. Because wouldn't that draw the presence of God? I know God dwells in us. That's not what I'm saying. But it's out of that overflow that we together bless the heart of God and we touch the heart of God. So I want to share a story with you 
from Scripture this morning that I think really illustrates this point really clearly. It's a very simple story. Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and so she came to Jesus and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister's left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to get up and help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, you've all heard this story before. And the challenge for us is to be a Mary in very much a Martha world. Busyness, distraction, hectic schedules. Every one of you, if I sat down with you, would say, I'm overwhelmed. There's just so much going on. School, work, family, got to do shopping, got to clean the house, got to mow the lawn. We've, we've all got that same scenario. There's no one here who's not busy. If you're not busy, come and see me. I'll make sure you are. But, but you understand the challenge is not to stop being a Martha. Like Jesus didn't say, Martha, you're doing the wrong thing. He said, Martha, Mary's chosen the better thing. So it's not that we stop being a Martha. God still needs us to be a Martha, but he wants us to be more like a Mary in that Martha world. Let me explain what I'm saying. So Mary's focused on Jesus, right? He's come into the house. She sits at his feet. She's listening to what he says. She's looking in his face. She's over. She's made a decision, this is more important than helping in the kitchen. Something within her has said, it's more important for me just to be here with Jesus than it is to be worried about whether the guests have a cup of tea or a coffee and there's food coming. She's made that choice. And Jesus said, Mary, you made the best choice because you're with me. You're in my presence. And, and Martha comes and she looks at her, what her sister's done. She gets jealous. She gets a bit you know, critical, and she says, Lord, tell her to come and, and help me in the kitchen. That's where she should be. That's the better choice. And Jesus says, no, it's not the better choice. The better choice is my presence, sitting in my presence. So Martha's distracted, and that's very easy for any of us to get into that scenario, isn't it? In our busy lives, we can just be like a Martha, the next thing to do. You know, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do that. And, got to, and all the time Jesus is there and the choice that we have is to sit at his feet or stay busy. We can sit at the feet of Jesus in our lives. We can practice the presence of God so that wherever we go, whatever we're doing, God is involved. There's nowhere we can go that God isn't, right? He's everywhere. But there's a conscious decision that we make whether or not we, we involve God in the things that we're doing. And we need to do that. We need to be a Mary in a Martha world. We need to block the busyness of this world out in such a way that we encounter God. We encounter the privilege of sitting at, at the feet of Jesus. There's always going to be distractions. There's always going to be pressing priorities and appointments. We can't change that. I can't go to the government of Victoria and say, it's all too hectic, can you slow it down? It's not going to happen. It's going to get busier. It's going to get busier and busier because the enemy knows if we're consumed by busyness, we won't make the time to be with the Lord. And so we've got to be smart enough to do a Mary and say, yep, the dishes can wait. Time with Jesus is more important. 
There's always going to be worries. If you're a parent, you know what worry is. Worrying about your kids. Are they doing the right thing? Are they, you know? We can't change that scenario, but the challenge for us is to be like a Mary in that scenario and to have our ear attuned to Jesus and have our eyes fixed on him. And so then we don't miss the blessing. We still do stuff for God. We don't, we're not, we're not, not going to sign up to the local monastery and become monks and shave our head and just sit in a room and meditate all day. That's not the point. But it's learning to have that encounter with, with the Lord moment by moment in every situation, whether it's a good or bad or ugly situation that we're in. So what Mary was doing was just soaking in the presence of God. In that living room, I don't know how many people were in the house, but she was just consumed by Jesus. And I believe that we're people that are supposed to experience something of the presence of God all the time. Like it's not a one-hour encounter on a Sunday morning. It's, it's a lifestyle of experiencing the presence of God. It's something that we should be hungry for. I don't know if any of you have read the scriptures, but when you die and go to heaven, what do you think you're going to do? You're going to worship God <laughs> all the time without stopping. That's the highest pinnacle of what we do. That's why worship, what we try to do here, is so important that we generate the presence of God. And it's something that, that the, the Old Testament people knew very well. Like Moses said to God, God, if you don't go with us, if your presence doesn't go with us, then what makes us any different from anybody else? Or what makes us different from the next group that meet, the scout group that Scott's part of, Cubs group? What makes us any different from them? It has to be the presence of God. And if the presence of God is here with us, which it is, but we are conscious of that and encountering that and experiencing that, then we're like a Mary. We're just sitting at the feet of Jesus. So it should be something that we value, something that we cherish, something that we chase after. Remember a book that was written by Tommy Tenney called The God Chasers. You know, we need to be people that, are, that when we come together, this, this is what we want to do. We want to get into the presence of God. We want to experience the touch of God, the love of the Father, just to soak there, not to do anything else. That's so hard for us because we become human doings instead of human beings. We find it so hard to, to rest and encounter God. But God doesn't give us a prescribed process and say do X, Y, and Z in formula. He just says, be still and know that I am God. What does be still mean? For you, Pete, it could be totally different to me. That's why you've moved down the beach. So you can sit and be still and look over the beauty of creation. You could sit there looking at those sunrises and sunsets and the beautiful beach and you could miss the fact that God is there with you. Or God can be part of what you're doing. You can be underneath the car changing the transmission covered in oil. But there can be a song in your heart. There can be the presence of God there. And it's just something we need to learn to practice. And somehow I think our Western Christianity has done us a disservice by sort of compartmentalising that and saying, well, when you have your quiet time in the morning, that's when you experience God. No, we experience God all the time, hopefully. That's the design, you know. There's an old hymn, some of you might remember it. I hate to admit that I know old hymns. 
I can't remember the exact words. Um, he walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, I live, I know he lives, he lives within my heart. But the words of that song are all about just the ebb and flow of daily life and how God wants to be part of that. And, and, he, and he's there waiting for us to be a Mary and just go, come, Lord, be part of this, help me with this problem, let's change my attitude, whatever it might be. And so we need to be people that when we come to the presence of God, if we're going to thrive, we have to be a people of God's presence. We have to know when we're in God's presence. We have to know when God's presence is absent. We, know, we need to know when God's grieved. We need to know when we're right in those moments where we just go, there's nothing more to do. Just, just sit, receive, be with Jesus. When I'm with Cheryl, I don't need to talk to her 24 hours a day, talk at her. I just sit in her presence. I can just hold her hand. We can watch a movie together. As long as there's an action movie. But you get the idea. God's made us to be relational people and to love him. And, and people often say to me, Mark, oh, do we have to raise our hands in worship? Do we have to? And I'm like, no, God didn't give us rules like that. He didn't say thou shalt. He just said you've got a body, use it to express love. If my relationship with Cheryl didn't have any physicality to it, it wouldn't be much of a relationship. But the physicality enables me to express what's in my heart. The Bible just says lift holy hands. It's not a prescription that I stand here and say, right, John, if you really want to know God, you better lift your hands today. Because that's legalism. Let God teach John what to do. But I can tell you, if he's hungry for God's presence, then there'll be a yearning, a craving in his heart that will come out. And he'll lift his hands, he'll get on his knees, he'll wave a flag. It really doesn't matter. It's the fact that he's consumed by the presence of God. And he wants to be in that place. And when he gets there, he doesn't want to run away. <laughs> he doesn't want it to finish. One thing you learn in, a, in, in another culture like the culture of Fiji is that they're, they're not dictated to by the time. So, so if they get to a place where God is really doing something, they don't go, well, everyone's got to be at you know, home at 11.30. We better finish. They stay in the moment because their value system says that that's more important than upsetting a few people who get a burnt roast. Because it's the highest pinnacle. It's what we're seeking to be in. And sadly, we can sometimes make worship about us instead of about God. That's why I think Matt Redman wrote that song, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, because it's all about you, not about me. And, and we've got that challenge to, to really be a people that, that love the presence of God. We appreciate that when we're in the presence of God, whether we come battered and broken, whether, like God's not waiting for us to be perfect because none of us will get there. So whether we come in with a horrible week and we just lay ourselves at the mercy of God, that's what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. His presence will give us that. His presence will give us peace. His presence will give us a new perspective. His presence will give us power. His presence is it. In him we live and move and have our very being. That's the point. It's God's presence that we want. We need to savour it. We need to know what it is. We need to live in it. We need to practice it so that it becomes more of a conscious part of our life. And God is interested in all that we want. So thriving is not striving. It's not Mark coming and saying, here's the five steps to a thriving life. A thriving life is being in the presence of God. 
and hearing his voice and receiving from him and giving your love back to him. It's immersing ourselves in his presence. So the problem is, is that you know, we probably fill our lives up with stuff that doesn't satisfy and then we don't have a craving for God because we're sort of filled up on the junk food of the world. And, and God has said, well, you know, if you, if, if you want to know me, then you've got to walk with me. If you, want to, if you want to know my ways, then you need to read my word. If you want to be someone who communes with me, then you need to pray. But God doesn't give you a, you know, a list of thou shalt do's. He just says, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? It just means in every situation that we're in, we pray. Lord, I'm so tired today. Could you give me strength? Or he just cut me off, Lord. Would you give him grace? Or whatever. It's just cultivating that sense that worship is who we are, what we were called to do. It's a lifestyle choice that we make all the time. So cultivate a lifestyle of constant dialogue, ongoing prayer without ceasing. Nurture and inclusion, a reliance and expectancy of God to be in the things that you do. It's, it's, it's not natural, but it becomes natural. Practicing the presence of God. Yeah, we can schedule time alone with God. That's a really smart thing to do. Why? Because God told us to? No, because Jesus showed us the pattern by retreating and spending time with God where, where there is time for meditation. There is time for, for just isolation with God and God alone. It's a good, healthy thing to do. But it's not a law. It's out of liberty that we do those things. So we want this seamless flow of continuously acknowledging God's presence in everything. And we'll only seek to do that when we have a desperate need for his inclusion. You see, if we don't think that that's really necessary, then we won't hunger to do it. And, and we can get by in life. You'll get by without God but it won't be God's best. And that's what Jesus said to Mary. He said to Martha, he said, Mary's chosen the better thing. The better thing was to be in the presence of God and to know that. So there's this beautiful song that we sing. And I believe the words are really, really timely. There's nothing worth more that would ever come close. No thing can compare you're our living hope, your presence, Lord. Like when Paul goes to work on a Monday and he sits with all his work colleagues, the only thing that separates him from them is the presence of God. That's what makes him different. That's what makes him remarkable. That's what makes every one of us remarkable, that the, the temple of God is us. And the presence of God goes with us everywhere. And the presence of God can change anything, you know. And, and you hear people say, oh, I've had such a bad week. I'm finding it hard, so, so hard to worship. No, you've misunderstood. That's every reason to worship. That's more of a reason to worship, not less of one. It's not an excuse. It's not denying who you are and pretending it's all lovely. It's coming broken and battered and throwing yourself at the altar of God and say, here I am, Lord, a living sacrifice. I'm bleeding. I'm coming apart at the seams. My marriage is disintegrating. But God, your presence is better than anything else. And God's presence can change our heart, can change our physicality, can revive us. It can do anything because God's possible of doing anything. So I've tasted and I've seen of the sweetest of loves 
when my heart becomes free and my shame is undone, when you're in God's presence. It's a beautiful song. Very, very, you know that that person knows what it means to bask in God's presence because they've experienced and encountered what comes of it. So Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. You know, I've been in some meetings where the presence of God has been so tangible. People couldn't even move. I was at, um, up in Toowoomba one year and a, and a guy from Fiji came to preach. His name was Bunyani Nakayatha. And, and, and he preached this message about the holiness of God and the purity of God. And, and the scripture verse was, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God in reverence and awe. And if you know anything about a hellfire and brimstone Fijian preacher, they're not scared about stirring people up. But this guy was just, yeah, it was just a moment. And he asked us to respond as a people and to lay down any sin in our life that God exposed or, you know, to, to do business with God. I tell you, there were people everywhere repenting. And then it was like this presence came into the room. It was like even if you wanted to move, you couldn't. You were just overwhelmed by the presence of a holy God and you were just, you were just consumed by that. And, and I think we've lost that. I think we've lost the reverence and awe of God. And, and, and I know we can get all, you know, all critical about it and point fingers at one another. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if in our heart of hearts we come to do anything and we have this revere for God and we come and approach him with great homage and love, we're going to be in the best place that we can be. I think that's why Mary sat at his feet. She knew who he was. She knew the blessing of sitting there. And Martha missed it, sadly. We don't want to miss what God has got for us. We're not monastics living in extreme solitude and meditation. We're people that live in a busy world that's chaotic. And there's all sorts of pressures to bear on us. But God is saying in the midst of that, Kerry, sit at my feet. In the midst of all that's on your plate, Brett, sit at his feet. Sit at his feet. We can all do it. We're made to do it. We're made to do it. God wants us to do it. You know, the day is going to come when every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. Everyone will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. They won't have a choice. Because the presence of God will be the ultimate truth to that. And people that have denied God all their lives will suddenly bow their knee and say, I was wrong. I worship you, Lord. Well, we do that now because we know who he is. And we know the blessing of being in his presence and cultivating that sense of God's presence. It's so beautiful. And I'm sure if we you know, went around the room and asked you about times when you really felt the presence of God, it's the most beautiful thing. And I think we need to be like Moses and say, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, then what makes us any different? 
than anybody else in this world. We want to be set apart, holy, righteous people who treat worship with great respect. Even if we drag ourselves through the door and throw ourselves at the mercy of God, that's fine. Come as you are. It's not about being a whitewashed tomb. It's okay to come broken. In fact, that's the best way to come. It's okay to come weak. In fact, when we're weak, he'll make us strong. So it's not a game where we pretend to be in a good place to worship God. We just come as we are and we let the presence of God transform us. That's what God's presence does. It transforms. Transforms hardship into a lightness. Transforms brokenness into healing. Transforms turmoil into peace. It's Jesus. It's his presence. It's his spirit. And we bear that in our bodies. I heard this line in a song this week. I want to finish off with it. The line of the song was, May the Lamb of God, may the Lamb receive the reward of his suffering. What's the reward for Jesus for all that suffering that he endured? Our worship, right? When we acknowledge what price he paid and we come however we come and say, thank you, God. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. That's the beauty of worship. Such a special thing. It's such a privilege for us to have these bodies that can do that. Such a privilege to give homage to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let me pray. Father, I I just want to acknowledge how tough it is for all of us in a Martha world where the pressures to bear are just so real and they're so constant and yet, God, in the midst of that, you ask us to just hold your hand and walk with you and to draw from you the life that you give, the peace that you give. Father, I know there's many worries that people have got. There's health issues, there's jobs that they don't have, income, busyness. Look, we've all got a list, Lord. But in the midst of that list is your presence. And so, Father, my prayer is just simply as we go out from this place today, help us to practice your presence. Help us to include you in the little things and the big things. Help us to have a song in our heart. Help us to have prayer on our lips Help us to commune with you. Help us to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, let our vision and our eyes see you and what you're doing in every situation that we walk through this week. Like Helen prayed, Lord, open the eyes of our heart to see people the way that you see them. To see ourselves the way you see us. Father, out of your presence, that's what we want to step out of and into this world. 
Lord, help us to be God chasers. Help us to be people that are hungry for your presence. Help us to be people that just value that above everything else. Your presence, Lord. There's nothing worth more. Lord, may that just be the cry of our heart this week as we go about our families and our work. Lord, be with us. You've promised us that you will. But Lord, help us to see you. Help us to invite you in. Let your presence change. Renew and transform what we face this week. 